Welcome to Breaking Through with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We have a show for you today. We talk about mommy wine culture and about a new book that's coming out called It's Not About the Wine, The Loaded Truth Behind Mommy Wine Culture. After that, we dive into what the noodle is happening in Congress with a potential government shutdown and how to help stop that from happening. Then we dive into military birth resource networks and postpartum coalitions. What can we learn from what's happening in the military and how can we support military families? And we close the show lifting up the importance of the National Diaper Bank Network. It is coming up on National Diaper Need Awareness Week with one in two families experiencing diaper need. Find out what's happening, how we can solve this crisis, and how we can make a difference together. We're going to jump right in with our first guest. We have a spectacular, amazing, wonderful, inspiring guest for you today, Celeste Yvonne, who is an Instagram influencer. She's an author. She is a coach. She is all the things, and she has a book coming out right now called It's Not About the Wine, The Loaded Truth Behind the Mommy Wine Culture. Welcome, Celeste. Thank you, Kristen. I'm so happy to be here talking to you. I'm really excited that you're here. You're writing about all the things that are so important that are often, too often, unsaid about the mental load of motherhood, outdated family norms, traditional roles in their harms that they can cause, and a systemic lack of support for moms, which impacts us, mm -hmm. and about the fact that alcohol isn't going to fix systemic problems. What are your hopes with the book coming out, It's Not About the Wine?, so my biggest hope with this book is showing mothers how to cope with some of our biggest stressors without alcohol. As you know, we're in a system in the United States right now that's broken, that is not set out to see mothers succeed. And while we work uh, to make changes uh, with groups such as yours, what can mothers do in the interim to survive, essentially? Yeah. And what are your tips? Like, what can people do? I know everybody, including me, wants to get the book. I'm going to fight for change. I'm going to fight for universal child care. I'm going to fight yes. for everyone to have access to paid family medical leave. I'm going to fight for maternal health equity and access to mental health supports. I'm going to fight for all the things. And I want to know, like you just said, what can I do in the interim? What, what are those tips? Right. Because Obviously, we all want to see this systemic change, but that will not be happening overnight. And in the meantime, new moms, moms who are in it, you know, in the ringer right now, they don't have the capacity to, you know, go out and do all the things. They're just living day to day. So when I, I talk to mothers who are in the middle of this storm, um, I, I tell them, you know, we need to start at home. It, it starts with redistributing the labor and the chores at home. Um, you know, there's this trend right now going on on TikTok, which is hashtag hire your village. And this is this is what mothers and parents are doing right now to survive. They are hiring their village. And of course, while that works for a lot of parents, it's also a message of privilege. We need better systems in place to support mothers of all means, parents of all means, 
And um, that's going to look like redistributing labor at home. That's going to mean uh, seeking outside support with your neighbors, with the local communities, with the church groups. What can you do? Where is support available? And how can you ask for it and seek it out? And then I think it's going to come down to changing some of these impossible parenting standards we have presented that a good mom doesn't ask for help. A good mom does it all and makes it look easy. These are the narratives that need to change if we're going to open these doors for mothers who are in the thick of it. We can't all do the impossible. It's just flatly impossible. And we know that when this many people are facing the same struggles, the same crisis, the same challenges at the same time, it's not an epidemic of personal failures. We have natural, national structural changes that we can and must make, and we know how to make them. But in the struggle, it is hard. And do you think that mommy wine culture is a symptom of our country not investing in the care infrastructure, like paid family medical leave when a new baby arrives or a serious health crisis strikes or childcare? What's happening? I think that's a huge part of it. I think mothers are in this perfect storm of expectations pressures and lag of systemic progress. Um, and mommy wine culture has fed into that. Mothers are seeking coping strategies for what is becoming an increasingly impossible position to be in. Uh, so is it no surprise that mothers are reaching for more wine than they've ever reached for because we literally have nothing else uh, to cling to as a crutch or to use as a coping strategy? I don't think so. I think that's why we've seen an increase in women's drinking uh, just in the past 10 years and more than ever since the pandemic. I think uh, when you look at alcohol, it's the cheapest, most easily available drug for adults in the US. And it's the only drug we need to explain not using. And then you look at what happened in the pandemic, especially for parents, specifically mothers, where much of the pressure fell on moms to not only handle the homeschooling and caretaking of children and all the things, but now we are working from home or we've lost our job, um, to see a rise in women's drinking as a result is not surprising at all. But this message, this social narrative that implies that moms need alcohol to cope with the challenges of raising children is a dangerous, problematic message for us to be sending to mothers, uh, especially mothers who are new in motherhood, who need mental health support. You're more likely to be struggling with postpartum depression or anxiety. And for us to be pushing this mommy needs wine message on top of all that, it, it just sends a very dangerous a problematic message to our mothers. The mommy needs wine message is so prevalent on many social media platforms. And when you see it, what do you think? Do you think, no? I do now, but I yeah. will tell you five years ago, I thought it was the best message ever because it helped me justify what for me was increasingly becoming my own alcohol problem. Um, but now, you know, as I've had time to uh, observe it from more of a further back standpoint, I've been sober for five and a half years. I, I'm a little less angry at the message. And I, I kind of see it for what it is. And it is 
uh, something that we are telling each other as a band-aid because we can't we aren't actually giving each other the support we need. So it's a very easy way to end cap what could be a woman's cry for help by pushing wine on them or suggesting wine is what's going to fix what ails them. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, this message puts the weight of our struggles on our children. It makes it sound like our children are the cause of our drinking, are the reason we drink, which is a problematic message for our kids. And then it's distracting us from the real issue, which is getting support for mothers who are struggling, getting support for mothers, finding that village that, you know, we, we've heard about, but is proverbial at this point. And um, at this point, some people are even resorting to hiring it because this is just where we are socially. And it also implies alcohol is a harmless coping mechanism, which uh, anyone who's seen the recent news and CDC data knows that there's no amount of alcohol that is safe. And um, we just have to be careful. This, we're talking about a drug. So pushing a drug and using a drug on mothers, especially new mothers, is a dangerous uh, narrative to be um sharing and passing along and implying that it's harmless. And I'm so thankful. And so are so many moms, dads, and people across the nation that you're out there spreading the word. How can people find you on Instagram? Yeah, I'm on Instagram at the ultimate mom challenge. And I just try to post things I'm thinking about and topics like this about uh, mommy wine culture, the mental load of motherhood, and what we can do about it. And also the book. Do you want to share a little bit about the book and where people can get it and what sparked you to move from social media to actual paper pages, which I'm so excited about? Yeah. And I wrote this book. I hope it helps mothers, but really anyone who feels stuck in the alcohol trap. If you did turn to alcohol during the pandemic or prior um, to cope with with the impossible standards of being a mother in 2020 and now 2023, you're not alone and there's better ways to do it and you don't have to continue to live like this. Um, so my goal with what I wrote and moving forward is to create a sober movement where people can feel proud and vocal about sobriety and to help people realize that sobriety isn't deprivation, it is liberation. Mm-hmm. I love that. And it's liberation to take action. Do you get a lot of questions from your audience about how to take action and how to get involved? Yes. And, you know, I have a question for you, Kristen, because so many people, you know, once the exhaustion of new motherhood uh, is done, moms are ready at a grassroots level to start doing something to make systemic change. What would you recommend I tell these these women? Oh, what a great question. You know, one of the things that I really like to remind people who are busy people, and let me tell you, as you know, moms are busy. Moms who are in the labor force are busy. Moms who are out of the labor force who are busy. Moms of all places and kinds and everywhere are busy. And so that means there's little time for activism. So the first thing to know is you don't have to do everything all at once all by yourself. So what I recommend to people is they find an organization that reflects their values and their contributions and their needs and sign up with that organization. That organization could be Moms Rising or it could be any other organization. 
can be the National Women's Law Center, National Partnership for Women and Families, Paid Leave for All. It could be National Domestic Workers Alliance. It could be carrying across generations. There are so many organizations doing advocacy. But importantly, that advocacy is in service to people who are busy, the moms who are busy, so that moms don't have to look through congressional records and note-taking to figure out where are the fulcrum points for change? When is it the moment where we need to call our member of Congress and say, vote yes, please, and already, you should have voted yes yesterday, a year ago, a decade ago, you know, on things like paid family medical leave. So organizations like Moms Rising, which you should find your organization, spend time doing the research for busy moms to find those moments when their voices will make a difference and we'll email you or text you or somehow reach out to you and tell you, okay, now's the moment where you can do something. You can make that call. You can sign a letter. You can share your story. You can post on social media and offer a wide variety of ways to take action on each issue area so that you can choose to do what you have time to do. So I think that's important, centering that moms are busy and allowing uh, moms to be able to be served by organizations like Moms Rising who are doing the research for them and opening many avenues for potential opportunity to make change that you don't have to use all the avenues at the same time. I think it's really important uh, to not feel that pressure to have another thing on your plate that you might not be able to do at the end of the day and know that we're all in this together and that together we are a ginormously powerful force. What do you think? Oh, I love that. I think that is great advice. You know, we we eat the elephant one bite at a time and that finding an organization that serves your needs can help you achieve that uh, little by little. Yeah, little by little, day by day, but it does add up. So yeah. in the last year alone, Moms Rising members have helped pass the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, the Pump for Nursing Mothers Act, mental health support, one-year postpartum health care coverage for all birthing people, you know, and more. So a lot of actions do happen, even behind the scenes that never make the front page, that mm -hmm. are propelled by the power of moms making those phone calls and signing those letters. <laughs> so together, I'm in this incredible, you know, humbled seat where I get to see change happening because of the power of moms. Um, and I'm so glad you're writing and talking and keeping the conversation front and center. And I hope everybody who's listening goes out and gets the book. It's not about the wine, the loaded truth behind the mommy wine culture. Please get that book right now. Please follow Celeste on Instagram, on Twitter, Ultra Mom Challenge. Go there, stay there, stay involved, and let's make change together. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Kristen. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with our next guest talking about what the noodle is going on in Congress with a potential government shutdown and how you can help avoid it. We'll be back in a quick moment. We're going to fight for Breaking through with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We have a guest with the inside scoop from inside our nation's capital, Catherine Rowland, who is with the Congressional Progressive Caucus Center. Thank you and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled you're on because in the news, many people are seeing the threat of an impending government shutdown. What the noodle is happening? 
Sure. So the reason folks are talking about this right now is because the money that funds all the federal government's programs and operations will run out after 11.59 p.m. on September 30th, so pretty soon. Um, so before then, the Republican House, the Democratic Senate, and President Biden have to reach an agreement to fund the government post-September 30th, pass that agreement through the House and the Senate, and the president has to sign it into law. If they cannot do that, they can always fund the government briefly while they keep negotiating. Um, but if they can't do either way, the government's going to shut down on October 1st. And what does that mean, a government shutdown? People are like, government, schmoverment. A lot of people don't realize <laughs> that the federal government is actually one of the largest employers in the United States of America and that a lot of the federal government services are actually what make it possible for us to move around and do the things we love doing. So what is it going to mean in sort of practical experience for people across the nation if the government shuts down? That's such a good question, um, but I'm afraid there's not a simple answer because it depends. In the past, Congress has occasionally funded some agencies and programs, but not others. So parts of the government has shut down while others keep operating. But whether or not a shutdown is total or partial, everybody's going to feel the impact. And I'll take the partial government shutdown that started in late 2018 as an example. Like just in that shutdown's first weeks, the FDA canceled more than 50 so-called high-risk inspections. So inspections that involve food that's vulnerable to contamination, like seafood, cheese, vegetables, you know, things that you want the FDA to take a look at. Um, and on top of that, more than 86,000 immigration court hearings were canceled, which delays proceedings for people who might have been waiting for their day in court for years. And I mentioned these examples to underscore that, like, even a partial government shutdown can endanger public safety um, and it can have long lasting effects, say, by adding to the backlog of immigration court cases. Um, and I also want to mention federal workers and contractors, as you did. You know, federal employees at an agency that shut down are either what's called furloughed, which means um, prohibited from reporting to work and don't get paid or they have to work without pay if they're considered essential to ongoing government functions like air traffic control. Now, historically, Congress will pay these workers retroactively when the government reopens, but it doesn't make it any easier for folks during the shutdown when they have to delay their mortgage payments or their credit card payments and are risking late fees or default. Um, and unlike workers the federal government employs directly, contractors don't typically get back pay following shutdown. So say you're a food service worker at a federal agency um, who's working there on a contract, you might never see the paychecks that you missed. And that obviously will have long-term implications for the families impacted. And what about things like national parks and wildfires? I mean, we're in some serious situations around the country because in large part, climate change. But what about that? Yeah, that's such a good point. So there are certain government functions that continue regardless of whether the agency is responsible for them shut down. Um, these are typically referred to as activities that are related to national security or the safety of life and property. So we're talking about, you know, inpatient hospital care, 
air traffic control, law enforcement, border security, power grid maintenance, um, and disaster aid. That's a big one, given some of these climate disasters that we've seen recently, like you mentioned. But you know, I should say, again, even these activities could experience disruptions. And I'll bring up the example of the 2018 into 2019 shutdown again, when air traffic controllers were forced to work without pay and began calling in sick in large numbers in protest, because as folks might remember, that shutdown went on for more than a month. And as a result, we were short air traffic controllers and that caused major flight delays and one day in January 2019, New York's LaGuardia Airport closed to incoming planes entirely. So even if there are functions that are going to keep going, they're not necessarily going to run as smoothly as we would like them to. What can people who are listening do to help prevent this government shutdown, which has these really, really, really big negative impacts on all of us? Yeah, so... What we need Congress to do is to fund the federal government um, into past this fiscal year. So like I said, this fiscal year ends on September 30th. We need the government to stay funded and open after that date. Um, but we also need Congress to fund the government in a way that's actually going to take care of our needs. Um, as folks who might be monitoring the news have seen, some Republicans in Congress are pushing for really draconian cuts to some of the programs and agencies that we depend on to keep our families healthy and keep ourselves safe. Um, we need actual resources that are going to support our communities. Um, and folks might remember that um, Congress and the White House reached a deal to avoid a default on our debt earlier this year, and that actually set out spending caps for the year ahead. So theoretically, we already have some of the high-level decisions made. Um, folks might not agree with a lot of what was in that deal, but at the very least, it should enable us to have the government stay open um, and avoid some of the disruptions that we just talked about. And I think you are really in the center of the storm here. And so do you think it makes a difference when people actually call the member of Congress and say, hey, please don't shut down the government. Please don't cut programs that lift the economy and families. Please take action now. Does it make a difference when people call? Absolutely. I worked in Congress for um, several years. Um, my gosh, uh, more than 10 if you count times when I was an intern and I was answering phone calls exactly like that. Um, and it really does matter. People notice when the phones are ringing off the hook. They notice when their email inboxes are filling up with requests from constituents saying, hey, keep the government open and do it in a way that's actually going to allow us to survive and have a chance to thrive, you know, reject these draconian cuts. And here's why this program's important to me. It's really important to make your voice heard. And if you can, if you have the ability, show up at town halls, at events that your member of Congress is going to be at. 
and ask them that question. Hey, you know, why are you proposing cuts to X program that my family depends on? Or why are you threatening to shut down the government over policy disputes? That's going to have far-reaching implications for our neighborhood. Um, it really does matter. And even if you can, if you can send an email, send a tweet, it doesn't have to be super burdensome. Any little way you can um, add your voice to the list, um, that's really helpful. And it's so good to hear from somebody inside our nation's capital that voices calling in, writing in, tweeting in from outside the nation's capital have such a big impact. One of the things we haven't talked about yet is the cost of a government shutdown. There is the real-time immediate cost of not having the services that we have come to rely on every day, but there are other additional long-term costs to having a government shutdown. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what are those long-term costs? Definitely. Um, so shutdowns hurt the economy. According to the Congressional Budget Office, which is sort of Congress's nonpartisan scorekeeper, um, the 2018-2019 shutdown, the one that lasted more than a month, cost the economy $11 billion. And in large part, that was because federal workers cut spending to cope with the loss of their paychecks, understandably. And, you know, I think there can be a perception that, oh, well, this is temporary because they're going to get paid retroactively and things will go back to normal. But that's not necessarily true. You know, we included a story in our explainer about government shutdowns that the New York Times reported after that shutdown ended. And there was one federal worker who said, you know, when the government shut down, he had about two months of salary and savings. Um, and his landlord helped him out by postponing a rent payment. But, you know, once he got paid, he had a lot of bills to tackle. And moving forward, he was going to start saving even more of his salary just in case. He said, no more fast food, no more taking the kids out to dinner. You know, that's going to have an impact on the local economy. If federal workers understandably start changing their habits because they're fearful that this could happen again, then folks are not going to go out and spend money maybe for a while in order to protect themselves. And so, you know, we shouldn't think that these these costs are going to go away immediately, just like how some of the human impacts are going to have long lasting effects. So can the economic impacts. It doesn't have to be this way, people. We can avoid the government shutdown. And by we, we mean Republican leadership who are, as many have uh, named it in the news outlets and so forth, holding our country hostage. What does that mean, holding our country hostage? Yeah, so, you know, a shutdown is folks pretty much, I think, understand, you know, costly for the public, for the government, for the economy. Um, it's something that is to be avoided. And so presidents and members of Congress have previously used the threat of a shutdown to get concessions from the other side in spending bill negotiations. So, in a hostage crisis, um, one side is making demands of the other um, so that they will, quote unquote, release the hostage. Um, in this case, that might be agreeing to cuts that you would never otherwise agree to or policies you would otherwise never agree to. 
in order to keep the government from shutting down. Um, so I'll I'll bring up this most recent shutdown example again. Um, folks might remember that back in late 2018, then President Trump refused to sign a government funding bill that did not fund his wall on the US-Mexico border. Um, so in that case, he was holding government funding hostage in hopes that Congress would meet his demand and fund a border wall. Um, the important thing to remember in these situations is that the person who's holding the hostage has to be willing to tolerate the harm that the shutdown causes. So in the case of that 2018 into 2019 shutdown, President Trump eventually agreed to sign an appropriations bill that did not meet his demand. Uh, because of mounting pressure from lawmakers, from the public, like we just said, um, in the wake of those air traffic controller shortages and flight delays, you know, I think the public pressure became too much. Um, so when a president or Congress tries to use government funding as a hostage to win their demands, it's really important to remember too, they're not guaranteed success. In fact, mm -hmm. a couple major recent examples have shown us they're not going to be successful. So to your point, Kristen, this doesn't have to be this way. You know, we can avoid this kind of hostage taking because if nothing else, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's ineffective. It hurts our economy. And right now, just to be clear to our listeners, it's Republican leadership in Congress that are holding our economy hostage by threatening a government shutdown. So call your members of Congress. Let those who are fighting for what's right know that you have their back and tell every single member of Congress, let's not go to a government shutdown. Let's fund the programs that lift families in the economy. Let's keep moving forward. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for giving us the inside scoop from inside the Beltway. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks, Kristen. We're going to take a quick break, but next up, we're talking about the military families and what needs to happen to support families, not only in the military, but across the entire country. We'll be back in just a second. the Breaking Through with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by somebody who has really important information to share with you. And I'm so glad you're on. Gabby Cavins, who is with the Military Birth Resource Network and Postpartum Coalition. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited that you're here because we have so very many military families in the United States of America. And we also have so very many families with family who are military families in the United <laughs> States of America. And military life often requires frequent moves, people moving from one duty station to another, constant change, and it can magnify the structural failures that we have in the civilian population into experiences when you're having to move and change on top of the fact that we don't have things like um, a care infrastructure created in the United <laughs> And so what you're doing is crucial. What is bringing you hope right now as you advocate for military families? I would say, you know, I think in so many things, right, we're finding that individuals are more likely to speak up now, right? Whether it's we're in the birth space, whether it's, um, you know, I have a sailor who's having a hard time finding childcare 
um, willing to talk to their chain of command, whether it's a spouse, you know, saying, hey, partner, like I'm having a really hard time. I'm carrying the load. And so I think now, you know, and I think it's a generational shift where people are just more willing to say what they need to say. And I think for me, that's one of the biggest factors of hope. I think back to right when I became a parent for the first time, I didn't speak up. Whereas, you know, today and becoming a parent for the third time, um, my little one is 16 months now, but how much I have grown through that and what we see that development um, with these younger families happening. And I think that's a really beautiful and powerful thing. Yeah, for sure. Now, one of the things is people are speaking up more. Does that mean more change is happening when people speak up? What are you seeing as a result of that speaking up? I'm seeing a lot of people get angry, <laughs> right? Um, who's I, getting angry? I, the speaking up people or the people on the receiving end of the speaking up or everybody? I think everybody, right? You you speak yeah. out in, in a sense of frustration. And on the other side, right, we're going against an establishment that has been established, right, for a while now, whether it's the medical system, whether it's the lack of care infrastructure, right? The things of, we've always done it this way. We're doing it this way because we've always done it this way. I'm doing it this way because this is what I was taught in medical school. I'm doing it this way for X, Y, and Z. And I think that, you know, it's, it's going to take a cultural shift as we all know, right, we've been following the news and, and looking at this, you know, care infrastructure piece or the mom to bus act or, you know, a medic Medicaid trying to cover doulas now, right? Um, we're really bringing in on the, we're riding this wave of, of the need. There's just such a lack of support and people, particularly mothers, right, are tired of that. We're tired of it. And, you know, it, it's time to, to say something. And so I would say we have a long, long way to go. But we've got to get we've got to get on on the on the wave here and keep moving. Yeah, we have a long, long way to go. And one of the things that I see is that when this conversation is sparked, when we say, hey, the contributions and needs of caregivers, paid and unpaid, are too often overlooked, unrecognized, and really pushed down and discriminated against. Being a mom mm -hmm. is a greater predictor of wage and <laughs> discrimination than gender. And across all races and ethnicities, moms are earning just 74 cents to a dad's dollar. With due to structural racism, black moms are earning 54 cents and mm -hmm. Latina moms just 51 cents to a white dad's dollar. It's not okay, people. The situation no. is not okay. We are not okay. And so when we speak up, we do see this change incrementally moving forward. And the change is picking up momentum. You know, we're seeing more and more change happening. And as we're seeing this more and more change happening and these incremental changes happen, what are you advocating for right now, most strongly for military families? Right now, it's getting um, doulas covered um, under the Childbirth and Breastfeeding Demonstration Act, getting doulas covered at military treatment facilities right now, as um, it was written in the NDAA previously. They were not covering the service for births occurring at military hospitals, which absolutely 100% discriminates against active duty service women, um, which is not okay at all. Um, and that's one of the big pieces. The other piece is birth choice, having active duty service women and beneficiaries who are on TRICARE Prime get to choose to go outside of the military hospital to give birth. That's a big one. As somebody who was a service member that had to give birth, at a military treatment facility and had a very, very traumatic experience due to that and had a lot of therapy and healing to go after that. Um, you know, that birth choice is such an important part. And, and I think that's part of the, the structure piece, right, that we have to build and, and for support. Um, and those are the two biggest things. And also um, 
bringing more doulas into the fold. We don't have enough birth workers. We don't have enough birth workers of color. Um, so one of our big priorities there is a community doula project to train more doulas that are familiar um, in the military space that are spouses as well. Um, they can be spouses, active service members, whomever, um, to bring in that familiarity and also um, providing education for those civilian doulas to have an idea of what it's like to be a military family and, and all those moves and and all that comes kind of with with being um, in the military. And and again, as you talked about, you know, diversity and, and culturally competent care that is so important at, at the key of what we're doing. 100%. And one of the things that you just lifted up is the NDAA, and that's the National yeah. Defense Authorization Act, listeners. And in the National Defense Authorization Act, it's possible to actually move legislative change because it's a must-pass bill for Congress. We cannot yes. not pass the National Defense Authorization <laughs> Act. That means you're able to get some really critical policies through Congress, including a recent expansion of military family leave. And yes. we can learn a lot about what you're able to pass for military families because we need those similar policies for every family in America. Can you share a little about the victory of the recent expansion of military family leave? Yeah, I mean, I think that one is is a huge piece. And there were so many organizations at the forefront of that and so many individuals, you know, making the phone calls and having the conversations. Um, and I think it's great we are running into a lot of roadblocks though, right? I think any great policy, right? And, and what we find in, in everywhere, right? It's your mid-level managers that are causing issues with policy, right? And so we're finding, you know, a lot of pushback again, right? This is just the culture system of, you know, the partners that aren't giving birth, they're not, you know, we don't want to, or we have to do it at certain times and things like that. So I think there's a lot, we have to do a lot of work to get it to be equal for everybody really. But I think that, that policy there is so so key um in making sure that that moms get that six weeks of convalescent leave plus the 12 right that was the always mm -hmm. the agreement um and then having um dads or partners get that full 12 weeks and, and sometimes right we have to break that up mission first and things like that but having those communications is key and as you know we know throughout history mili the military has been used as an agent of social change right we were the first to integrate and things like that and so you know something that we've always said too within just the birth space in particular is that if we can do it here and we can do it right we can do it everywhere else and if we can prove that we can do it right everyone can do it yeah <laughs> that's right that's right it's a beacon of hope literally i mean the military while it does not have sufficient child care did pave the way to have childcare workers paid on a similar scale level as other military workers instead of on an entire different planet of completely unfair pay. <laughs> yes. My dog is even upset about this. Poor <laughs> pay for childcare workers in the United States of America. Childcare workers are some of the lowest paid workers in our nation, in the civilian communities. And um, so the career and wage ladder that was developed in the military has been a model um, for the civilian community across the country. And we need more childcare everywhere. We need access to more childcare that's affordable, accessible, high quality, and that has fair pay in a career and wage ladder for childcare workers, who are mostly moms, by the way, um, happening across the nation. But the lessons that we've learned in the childcare structures in the military have really helped shape some positive change um, in the civilian childcare system as well. What are your thoughts on that? I would say, you know, it's 
we have to keep taking these steps forward. And, and what's so fascinating is, you know, we know that the military community is such a small percentage, right, of the grand population. And just seeing this expansion is so key in making sure that we're touching, you know, the lives of, of dual military service members, as we know most. I think last week they looked as like 46% of military women are married to active duty service members. So that's really important, you know, and having this hierarchy structure and making sure that everybody's supported so we can meet that mission and then be able to expand that to, okay, you know, my, my spouse is deployed. I need a break. I need somebody to help because most of us are right away from, from family and friends and in new places. And so just being able to see this and then um, again, being able to prove, right, that we can do it here. We can pay fairly. We can have good, right, compensation, have good benefits, have um, also for those individuals that are working there to have care for their children as well. Because as you mentioned, most of them are, are moms or parents. Um, and then being able to create a really nurturing, important environment that is safe, that we know that, you know, our children are are going, are not going to be exposed to, you know, all the, the scary things that we may find in the world. You know, we talk about gun violence in schools and things like that. They're protected a lot of times on base, right? We have a lot of security measures in place. We have those background checks and things like that. And so we're putting all these measures in place for people to have a peace of mind, which goes into that mental health piece, right, for everybody. Um, and then being able to then say, hey, we've done it right here. If we can do it right here, we can do it right on the grander scale and, and hopefully paving the way again, really for that fair pay um, for everybody. Because that work that our care providers do is so, so critical for us to meet the mission. 100%. Now, how can people back up military families, even if they're not in the military? Is there a way for people to support your organization? Absolutely. We have um, individuals that are ambassadors um, to our organization that help us, you know, spread awareness in the word on um, just all perinatal things uh, for military families, whether it's it's donating money, donating time, um, and educating their communities and, and being part of our coalition meetings. Um, there, you know, we, we fund certain of our projects, like I mentioned, the community doula project, if you're interested in birth work in that way, or if you want to become educated, right, in serving the military population, um, we're there to serve you. And also for birth workers that live within or near communities of the military, um, joining as members of our organization, um, in order so military members can connect with you and, and likewise, right, these community members can educate military families on the culture of birth in their area, right? For example, giving birth in Lafayette, Louisiana is entirely different than giving birth in San Diego, California, which is entirely different than giving birth in the Midwest. And so, you know, having this back and forth dialogue between these communities is really important for, you know, everything from maternal mental health to, um, birth equity and justice to all these things. And then again, focusing right on culturally competent care. 100%. Again, 100%. So I <laughs> up and I Googled while we were talking, I was like, Ooh, what is the website for the military birth resource network? So all of our listeners can join support and stay involved. And it's www.militarybirthresourcenetwork.org. Again, www.militarybirthresourcenetwork.org. Do you also have space on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the places? Oh yeah. Find us on, on Facebook. At, it's military birth resource network and postpartum coalition. We just added the and postpartum coalition. Um, for short, if you want to find us on, on the World Wide Web, just mbrnpc.org. That'll take you right there to the one that you mentioned. Um, we're also on Instagram. We are actually launching 
our inaugural podcast on September 21st that's called The Military Birth Talk. And Ooh, it's entirely, yeah, entirely stories of um, spouses, actually service members, and, and essentially their birth stories and their experience, whether it's, you know, PCSing with a two-day-old across the world or, you know, here's my birth story. That's launching on September 21st. And you can find that um, group on Instagram at The Military Birth Talk. We're really excited about it. I'm excited too. Everybody listen, get involved, support. Yes. And thank you so much for being on Gabby, Military Birth Resource Network and Postpartum Coalition. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. We're talking about national diaper need awareness. One in two families are experiencing diaper need, what you can do about it and why it's happening. We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to fight for love. Breaking through with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by yet another spectacular guest for you, Joanne Samuel Goldblum, who is the CEO and founder of the National Diaper Bank Network. Welcome, Joanne. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's talk about diapers. In the United States of America, diapers are more expensive than most people who don't have to regularly buy diapers imagine. Can you share a little bit about the cost of diapers in America right now? Sure. So, you know, diapers, like many other, um, you know, commodities, inflation has hit everybody hard. Diapers tend to cost about $80 to $100 a month. But the thing that is particularly difficult is that, as with most things, the less money you have, the more things cost. So while if you have access to a credit card and a safe place to have things delivered and your own transportation, you know you can find better deals. But when you don't have those things and you need to buy your diapers at, say, a corner store or you know a small store they're much more expensive and so you know it really becomes a very significant issue for many americans yeah and that's a good point the relative cost to your pay is right. a really important factor to take in when we're thinking about diapers in america you just shared new data from the Diaper Checked Report in June and what it means for families. I know there's a lot of data in there. What rises to the top? So, I mean, first and foremost, the thing that really changed is that up until now, we, we've done a, you know, a number of studies and there's been information that says that it used to be that one in three U.S. moms struggled with the issue of diaper need. And what we found in the Diaper Check 2023 is that that number goes down to almost one in two. 47% of the study participants reported diaper need. And that is an enormous, enormous increase. Um, you know, and so there were other things as well that were really, really striking. Um, you know, we learned about people cutting back on buying other basic essentials so they could afford diapers. We learned that there were families 
almost over 27% of families with diaper need said that they've skipped meals to afford diapers. Skipping meals to afford diapers. That is so important for people to know about. How is the organization that you're leading, the National Diaper Bank Network, addressing this crisis? So, you know, we've been around, we're going into actually our 12th year pretty soon. And we do a few different things. One is, you know, we have, we're a network. So we have over 250 basic needs banks across the country. And they distribute free product to people who need it. So that's a big part of what we do. We support those diaper banks and, um, you know, we have a conference, the only conference that's sort of directed to diaper banks in the country. It's called the U.S. Conference on Poverty and Basic Needs. And we have that every October. The other things we do are we work on policy. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, I truly believe that the only entity that is large enough in the United States to address this issue, and this issue is an issue of poverty. And that entity is the U.S. government. You know, that's where the change needs to happen. The level of poverty that we have in this country is overwhelming. And so we do a lot of work in that area. And the other area we do a lot of work is research because things like this, you know, being able to quantify what the issue is helps to move the needle on policy work and also on philanthropy. You know, right now we're incredibly lucky. We have amazing corporate support. Our founding sponsor is Huggies. They donate 20 million diapers a year to us. We have amazing philanthropic support. But, you know, if you think of, of it as a three-legged stool, only two of those legs are there. And the government is that third leg. And we need to, to make that change. What changes is it going to take? And I love talking about change because I have <laughs> a lot of hope in change. So what, what are the top changes? I'm ready. And so are okay. like so I think, you know, th there are a lot of answers to that question. I always start with, right, right now, the problem is that U.S. Americans don't make as much money as things cost. There's a gap between wages and the cost of goods. So, you know, on a very basic level, and I always say, you know, I'm a social worker, not an economist, but what I believe is that you know, we either have to lower the cost of goods or increase wages. And given that this is the United States, it's going to have to be increasing wages, right? So yeah. that's a huge thing. We've got to raise minimum wage because, yeah. you know, we still have people working full time in the United States living below the federal poverty level. And so, you know, in my mind, that's a sin, right? How how could that be? So I think that that's, you know, the biggest one of the biggest things. The other thing we need to do is to create a subsidy for material basic needs. Um, you know, we have SNAP and WIC and those don't cover things like diapers or other hygiene products, period supplies, cleaning supplies. And the truth is they shouldn't. You know, they're nutritional subsidies. They're run out of the Department of Agriculture. They're not meant to pay for material basic needs. But we need to create a subsidy like that 
for these things because you know we're talking about diapers but i always say you know like in almost every supermarket in america there are those four enormous you know aisles in the middle you know all of your cleaning supplies your over-the-counter medicine your hygiene products and your cleaning and your paper goods none of those are covered by any subsidy and so you know what is it that families who are um you know living on snap benefits supposed to do yeah what 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 we need help dramatic help so mm -hmm. for people who are listening should they call their member of congress should they sign on with your organization what should they do sure. like so that is a great some like tactics that is a great question so i think a big part of it is talking about poverty recognizing the fact that in the u.s nearly you know over 40 percent of our children are poor or low income and so i think that what people need to do is they do need to talk to their elected officials but more than that they need to vote for people who care and who are going to commit to making life better for all of us. Because yep. if, I think that that, you know, people really lose sight of that, of how important voting is, and not just on federal issues. You know, a lot of the change we're seeing is on a state level. States have a lot of ability to make change. So absolutely, you know, talk to your elected officials about what they do do they support increasing the minimum wage do they support providing money for material basic needs for families so that's that's really that, important it's so super certainly, important. yeah right yeah I, and it, it it's it's simple but it's important so certainly people can support our organization we would love that we also like i said have a membership of over 250 basic needs banks across the country if you look at our website you can find your local basic needs bank you can volunteer you can donate you can do a diaper drive and bring those diapers over to to you know to that organization because really right now diaper banks rely on their communities to be able to provide this incredibly important basic need to the families they support how can they find your website so that they can dive in and find their local services absolutely so they want to go to of course www um national diaper bank network dot org national diaper bank network dot org yep and in that we have um you know if you go to the need and then our programs it's community diaper programs and in that you can find a list of our different diaper banks and you know really and also on there we have something about how to have a how to host a diaper drive how to become a volunteer and also information about how to advocate you know you don't have to be a diaper banker 
to advocate for this issue. We host a lobby day every year, um, you know, in March or April, and we go down to DC and we talk to our elected officials. And we love to have people join us because it's, you know, I don't know, I'm guessing that you feel the same way. It's incredibly empowering to talk to your elected officials. Yes, I do, 100%, yes. Yeah, no, I I figured you you seem like you're, you know, you're there with me. If you haven't done it, it's really something that's worthwhile. And so, you know, people can do that. They can get involved. And if you go to, you know, our member diaper banks and you don't find a diaper bank in your area, give us a call. Maybe it's time to start one. You know, maybe it's time to come together in your community and figure out a way to address it. You know, there are, although we have over 200, there are areas of the country that are less, um, that that have less support in this area. And with one in two families struggling with diaper need, the fact that we're also coming up on National Diaper Need Awareness Week in September is a good reason for everybody, every single listener, to go to www.nationaldiaperbanknetwork.org and get involved. It is a fabulous webpage. I'm looking at it right now, people. I know you're jealous of me. You can donate, you can volunteer, you can advocate, you can support, you can engage, you can convene, you can change the world um, and address poverty, which is one of the root causes, as we've just heard, of diaper need. I am so excited that you're on. We only have one minute left. Do you have sort of something that keeps you going and hopeful as you address this giant, enormous struggle in America? Yes, I do. What keeps me going is remembering that it's the small things that impact big things. And so that's really what we think about. So there are lots of people out there thinking about the really, you know, the really big things. And what we think about are diapers and period supply products and toilet paper and deodorant, you know, the things you need to leave the house. And so I believe that we can make the change. And so, you know, we just got to keep on, keep on trying. Keep on trying, keep on going, make that change, get involved again, www.nationaldiaperbanknetwork.org. Thank you for all you do. Thank you. Thank you for being on and for everything. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of the planet Earth. Here goes. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom. We'll catch you next week. We're going to fight for love.